Welcome back to Trebuchet Talks, an increasingly irregular podcast that teases the new out of the often speculative world of contemporary art, which might be the coolest virtual currency since Pokemon cards. I'm Kailesh, and I'm coming to you from Trebuchet Towers in the ecstatically sunny nook of northwest London, where we're looking forward to meeting people again in whatever numbers the government currently advises. In this episode, we have an interview with artist Benji Reed, as well as catching up with art bon vivant Millie Walton. But first, here's Trebuchet's own events manager and mindful creative coach, Megan Grace Hughes. So, what have you been up to? So what have I been up to? Well, loads. Um but also simultaneously uh, not a lot. And um, honestly, I have this kind of lockdown amnesia where I've done tons and tons of stuff, but it's all merged into one amorphous blob and I can't really remember key points. So I did start running during the first lockdown. Uh, I started doing Couch to 5K. I tried to do that so many times and uh, I just gave up um, part of the way through. But this time I persisted and I did it in the nine weeks. And then gradually kind of got up to the point where I was running 10K, um, which was amazing. I was really happy with that. Uh, And then in January, I fell over when I was out running and broke my wrist. (laughs) So that's been a lesson. I've had to dial back on any exercise at all and just kind of sit, be and um, just chill, really. Um, I'm now back running, thankfully, but uh, it took a while. What have we learned from lockdown? Before lockdown, would you have ever thought it was possible for pretty much the whole world to shut down? Um, and, and, and that really just got me thinking about how the world can flip on an axis. It can change. Change is possible. Um, and obviously, in this case, it was needed to stop the spread of the virus and to save lives. But I think a lesson can be learned from that, that change is possible. And just because things have always been a certain way, they don't always have to be that way. During the first lockdown, we were collectively sent to our rooms basically for we didn't even know how long you know we thought maybe a couple of weeks maybe a few months but hmm. give or take with a few uh, months in, in the meantime it's, it's been a year we all did it because it was for the greater good and I think that's a really good lesson that we all got behind it and we all did our bit because we realised how important it was to do that. And I think that's a really good lesson to carry forward. Pre-lockdown, we spent a lot of our life kind of commuting from place to place to place. And that in itself is exhausting. So I think that's possibly something that we've learned from lockdown. Do we need to be moving about quite as much as we did? And those kind of technological um, uh, solutions, you know, the Zoom meetings are great, but if you are sitting in them for seven hours a day, that can be a bit much. So I think it's just setting those kind of realistic boundaries. Lockdown has presented us with some great opportunities as well. So how do we keep the good before we go back to our other more random lives? So I think one good thing to come out of lockdown is less commuting and uh, the potential for people to have more flexible working hours. Most people could probably commute at least one hour each way, um, on an average so if you add that up uh, across the year that's a lot of hours that people are saving and do something else with that time so I think that's something that's uh, been good I think another thing that we can keep is staying connected doesn't have to always be in person although that's really really great but you know the online kind of technology is a good way to stay in contact with people to stay connected so one thing that I found during lockdown is creatively I got stuck a few times uh, when I was writing music Um, I just couldn't 
write in the way that I would normally write. Hmm. So I just mixed it up a bit. Uh, rather than trying to sit down and traditionally write a song, I would take samples and loop together samples and just mess about, which is kind of what I did creatively when I was like 15, just mess around and see what worked. And uh, not, all of it's, not all of it's great, but uh, I find that just looking at stuff from a different angle, I think that that's, um, that's a really good thing to do. What lessons will people take from lockdown, do you think, as they get back to normal? So again, I think that the fast-paced way of life might not always be the best way. Never getting a chance to catch your breath. Like, what are you actually gaining out of that if you're just running about? So actually just getting a bit of space to sit and just be and be quiet is something that we've all had to do and it's not always easy. In fact, um, something I've learned about during lockdown is the thing called radical acceptance. Uh, and radical acceptance is basically what it says on the tin. It's uh, accepting your current situation as it is. Hmm. And this isn't something that we all do naturally. Uh, often we fight our reality quite a lot. So we think this should be this way or I wish it was this way or why isn't it this way? And actually what you're doing there is you're fighting reality and you're causing yourself extra suffering on top of the you know situation that you're not particularly happy with so by accepting that situation as it currently is you're freeing yourself up from the suffering and you're giving yourself a bit of time to think of maybe solutions to make changes so for instance in lockdown a lot of us did this we wouldn't have necessarily gone out for a big long walk every day pre-lockdown but actually given that time during lockdown a lot of people did that we all kind of got out of the house and, and did a bit of exercise and um, and I think that's that's something that people can maybe carry forward with them. And also another thing I was just thinking about that uh, was uh, pre pre lockdown, um, like going into work when we were ill was the absolute norm. If you had a cold, you wouldn't stay at home. You would go on the tube, probably infect a load of people as you're on your way into the office. Sit in the office, definitely infect people. You just accepted the fact that if somebody had a cold in your office, you were probably going to get a cold too. That's mind-boggling now. So I think that's maybe something that uh, people um, uh, will will take away from this, that if you're ill, don't go into work. What advice do you have for people nervous about going back into the world? So one thing that has happened with the pandemic is that we've all been through this shared experience. And obviously not everybody's experienced the same experience you know some people um have had you know wildly different experiences and the way that people have um responded to it varies wildly too i suppose it's like anything else in life we all respond differently to situations and i think the way that people respond after the pandemic is going to be wildly different too there's going to be people who are nervous understandably nervous about going back into normal life being around people because you know being told to stay away from people for so long so getting back into that environment when you're squished into people on the commute or going into a bar where there's no social distancing um uh, might be a bit much for some people and I think for those people they shouldn't feel bad that they're feeling like that they just need to accept that that's how they're feeling right now and look at things that they might want to do instead so maybe rather than going to a busy pub or a club maybe they want to go to a coffee shop 
or maybe they want to go to an art gallery and meet a friend there so it's not like you don't like there's no, there's no race to this like you don't have to there's there's no goal to get to the goal is to basically get back into uh, a way of being which feels right for you and that will feel different to anybody so I think the key is just checking in with yourself and just really investigating how you're feeling are you feeling anxious are you feeling stressed and if you are try and work out ways that you can um, mitigate that people have different self-soothe techniques some people might meditate some people might read a book some people might have a bath some people might exercise so so yeah different different ways to just uh, check in with yourself and uh, try and um, help your your nervous system recalibrate as we're getting back into life basically just don't be in a rush just chill So, by the sound of disagreements regarding the Oxford comma and whether it's time for the word seminal to return to regular usage, here's an update from the print room. Trebuchet 9 materials has been out in the world for over a month now and there have been a flurry of subscriptions and orders from all over the world. I wonder what it was that piqued people's interest. Was it our exclusive interviews, articles and art from artists such as Gavin Turk, Gilbert and George, Herman Nitsch, Dylan Martinez, Richard Stone, Barbara Carsten, Gail Olding, Tacita Dean or Gerhard Richter. Or perhaps people were demonstrating brilliant taste by judging the edition from its wonderful cover. A hasty judgment, but a worthy one nonetheless. Issues are available from the website and from wherever good magazines are sold. Honestly, we do make more from direct sales, but it's been a tough year out there, so if you can pop into your local WH Smiths or independent newsagent and pick up a copy, please do so. Small businesses are hurting the world over, so if you can help them out, it's a good idea. Details of your closest newsagent or bookstore can be found on our site. And it's even sunny out, on this day at least. As regular listeners might know, Trebuchet started a discussion about how artists could reach a broader audience and how we might build a network of fledgling art collectors. For issue 9, we've got a number of different signed and numbered limited edition prints by Gail Olding, Mark Batty, James Johnson, and most recently, we have a portrait of Matt Berninger from the musical group The National, signed by both Matt and the painter Michael Carson. The portrait itself was the cover for Berninger's 2020 album, Serpentine Prison. So how do you get your hands on one? Simply visit the Trebuchet shop, subscribe, and add the subscriber print of your choice to the basket. Check out and it's done. Please note that because of the way the store works, if you just want the Matt Berninger print, all you have to do is subscribe. All subscribers receive the current issue of Trebuchet by default. However, if you have a preference for another issue, please let us know ASAP and we'll amend your order accordingly. And now, subscriber shoutouts. As a bonus for subscribers, we're going to give something of an informative and perhaps quietly unsettling shoutout as a way of saying thanks for supporting us. Each episode, we read out a little bit of a key or even quirky reference from a book we're using to put together the next issue of Trebuchet. This time, we're reading Available Light by Clifford Geertz. It's a book on his anthropological reflections on philosophical topics. This particular copy was owned by a Mr. Freestone previously, who apparently got it a bit wet. However, the words are intact and often quite inspiring. While it goes without saying that all subscribers, listeners, iTunes commenters, sharers and water cooler conversationalists get our heartiest thanks, something extra special goes to subscribers and Patreon supporters who make it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing. £3 subscribers get a punchy phrase, £7 subscribers get a grappling sentence, 
and those generous patrons and subscribers who commit to the highest amount will receive a full round of wordage. So let's begin. For a G. Edvi, it can't be that we study other societies, because more and more of us study our own, including the increasing proportion of us, Sri Lankans, Nigerians, Japanese, who belong to such other societies. It can't be that we study culture, forms of life, or the native's point of view, because in these hermeneutical, semiotic days, who doesn't? Thank you very much. The next subscriber is Stuart Atkins, and his paragraph goes, Nevertheless, it is not this centrifugal movement, powerful as it has become, that is the main cause of the present sense of unease. History, philosophy, literary criticism, and even latterly psychology have experienced similar internal diversification for similar reasons, and yet managed to maintain at least some general identity. Thanks again. Oliver Elms it is not, however, the disappearance of a subject matter supposedly unique as such as that has proved so shaking to the foundations of social anthropology, but another privation, the involvement with societies less castaway, has brought on. The loss of research isolation. Cheers. Luciana H. Those people with pierced noses or body tattoos, or who buried their dead in trees, may never have been the solitaries we took them for, but we were. The anthropologists who went off to the Talensi, the Tundra, or the Tikopia did it all. Economics, politics, law, religion, psychology, and land tenure, dance and kinship, how children were raised, houses built and seals hunted, stories told. Thank you. K. Windybank. This is all no longer. When one goes to Nigeria, Mexico, China, or even in my own case, Indonesia and Morocco, one encounters not just natives and mud huts, but economists calculating Gini coefficients, political scientists scaling attitudes, historians collating documents, psychologists running experiments, sociologists counting houses, heads or occupations, lawyers, literary critics, architects, even philosophers, no longer content to draw the cork out of an old conundrum and watch the paradoxes fizz, are getting into the act. Melanie Hawthorne, thank you very much. The curious thing about this effort to define ourselves in terms of a particular style of research, colloquial and offhand, entrenched in a particular set of skills, improvisatory and personal, rather than in terms of what we study, what theories we espouse, or what findings we hope to find, is that it has been more effective outside the profession than it has been within it. So that's it for the print room update for this episode. Thanks for dropping by and wearing a mask. Now it's time for an update from our roving art editor, Millie Walton. But before we go into it, a few words of caution. We had some audio issues recording our chat with Millie, and it's sort of tolerable, but if you find it hard, please skip ahead by about 20 minutes. There's crackle, there's hum, there's mansplaining, but if you can get past that, Millie does have some fantastic things to say. Onward. So hello Millie, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm uh, a bit tired of the rain and the grey and looking forward to some sun. I thought we were going to have spring by now. I think everyone was hoping something like that would happen. Has there been anything that's taken your fancy? Yes, well, actually, um, there are quite a few things that I'm excited about. A bit like you, I've been getting uh, invitations to go to galleries in real life, which I can't even contemplate what that will be like, to be honest. That'd be so exciting. Um, but I am, I'm really excited at the moment. There's a William Kentridge exhibition. Well, there's sort of two. There's one which is 
online with Marion Goodman, um, and that's his prints. And then there's also one at the Luxembourg Museum, which I don't know if I'll be able to get there. Maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> I think but, maybe maybe a bridge too far at this stage, but you never know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, it's on for a while, so yeah. maybe. Um, and that's a, so he's um, he's an artist that I really admire, um, and his practice is is so interesting because it's very sort of performative and narrative and weaves in all these interesting historical references and it's just so varied I think um throughout his career and it's a solo exhibition and I've actually never been to one of his solo exhibitions in real life I've only ever looked at his work online so that would be very exciting for me to get there what sort of things would you look for in particular I've always been particularly drawn to his drawings um the ones which are sort of done in charcoal and then he often animates those um and in the animations what i really like is the way that he uh, shows the kind of rubbing out process or the drawing so that you see it kind of looks like you don't ever see his hands in it but you can kind of see the movement across the screen or across the page i've always found kind of things sort of like the traces left behind on canvases you know the little rough points the bits where it's not quite perfect I just love that in art I sort of always look for it secretly looking for for the marks where it's not a mistake but it's it's just like evidence of of the making and of the human behind it I think it's that lovely part of the appeal of Jackson Pollock's paintings is that you can feel the action and the rhythm and the the energy that went into their creation in drips and brush strokes and I suppose in some sense the craft of of making but then of course there are people like Tacita Dean who you know and it's not unintentional that they've left those craft marks there it's certainly is part of the the work itself yeah I think I think that's actually a really interesting aspect I mean there definitely are similarities between them both and I think it is about performance actually like the performance of making art which is interesting because then you think they're genuine rubbing out when they've made a mistake or something and then what's done there because because they want us to see some meaning in it and I think that's quite interesting. I uh, was talking to an artist recently who was describing his process where he he paints on wood and then carves into the wood around and through the area that he's painted to create the idea of a kind of palimpsest or a layering of different images and meanings and you know I suppose referencing time and our own narratives and you know you can kind of go into that and also I guess just on a very direct level it creates a sense of mystery Mm. so that people like you and I we we go and have a look and you you know your nose is almost on the canvas at some points as you try and work out what came first and you know what's coming through and what's receding back in a way I don't I think yeah I think that aspect of time and sort of yeah, I to be honest, it's making me think that I'm just sort of drawn to any kind of art, which is like very existential. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, there's quite... Um, In fairness, that, that does cover a fair amount of it. <laughs> no, it's true, yeah. But there's, an, uh, there's an exhibition coming up as well um, with Jessica Rankin at White Cube. I actually think it might even open today. 
And um, in a similar way, well, she doesn't necessarily do drawings, but she sort of gets embroidery and sort of weaving into her practice and bits of poetry. And she's quite, hers is interesting because it is, it is sort of a palimpsest, I'd say, and it's kind of thinking about thought and the way that we think or capture memory. And she has this method um, which she kind of got from surrealist poetry is kind of randomization in terms of her process, which I think is really interesting. I'm very excited to see the exhibition actually, because I've read about this being her process and I've sort of seen the works online, but I think because they're so layered and they uh, quite often she uses these kind of like translucent materials and things so that you can see through to what's behind. Um, and I think her work is definitely one where you need to stand in front of it to understand its making. But I was, yeah, just, sort of rambling now but I think the I think the, I think the surrealist poetry and the randomization is interesting because going back to what we were saying about Tasta Dean or William Kentridge maybe being quite performative I think that it seems to me that Jessica Rankin is trying to get outside of that by doing this randomization and is trying to sort of get away from herself as an artist making decisions and trying to just yeah, have no narrative and seeing what happens, which I think is quite an interesting way to approach art or writing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What else has taken your fancy? So I actually recently got through um, some information about the Folkestone uh, Triennale, which I've actually really enjoyed going to it every year. I quite like that you sort of wander around and then come across art. Um, And that's actually the same as what's going to happen in the Helsinki Biennale, which is the first one they're doing. And that one's on an uninhabited island. Again, I'm sort of saying I really want to go to that, but I think I don't know if I'll be able to. That opens in June. But the Folkestone one, I think, will be interesting because there's quite a lot of art which is sort of relating to landscape and the environment um, and particularly sort of coastal places and I think the English coastal towns just fascinate me endlessly because they're sort of they're in this strange state of decay a lot of them you know that but they used to be this place this kind of glamorous place and you see all of these photographs of very glamorous people going to the beach um in the past and now when you go it's these they've got arcades and all these sort of peeling paint and things and I just I love I love it as a space and I think that art which is interacting with that um and again I guess sort of the effect of time on place yeah um, interesting yeah one of our um previous artists we featured was Luciana Hale and she's worked a lot with augmented reality and hauntology so she create uh places like St Leonard's and you know Blackpool and places where I suppose during the Victorian era, they had these quite grand structures that have subsequently fallen away or been demolished or something like that. And then using augmented reality to to replace them, to create this layered history that you can experience and really emphasize. I don't know if that emphasizes the past glory or emphasizes the the decay or or whether there's a mixture of it. But uh, yeah, it's quite effective and quite moving in a way. You know, you feel like Ozymandias kind of attending Butlins or something like that, looking upon your uh, aquatic works and maybe not despairing, but certainly wishing that those times would come again. 
There's actually um, one of the artists at Helsinki Biennale is um, is kind of doing something quite similar. Has created VR um, almost like tool uh, sort of journeys that you. I'm not exactly sure how it works because I. It's just a very short brief on the artwork, mm. but it's that you sign up to go on this VR journey that takes you through time as you explore the island. And I think that sounds like an interesting yeah. thing to do. Absolutely. Are there yeah. any other trips abroad that you can, uh, you're can you dreaming of that you've seen yeah. or, or, or maybe exhibitions closer to home? Well, so one of each, actually. Julie Marutu is currently or is opening very soon as a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum in New York, which... Again, I'd love to go to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, I mean, I think maybe I'm just wishing to go away a little bit. Okay, yeah, but, which, which is coming first, the art or the holiday? They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> they go together. They go together. But, um, yeah, I would love to go to her exhibition. Um, and, yeah, I think her work's really interesting. Quite similar. There are some similarities in the way she kind of paints and makes these sort of expressionist marks, I guess. Yeah. And then also um, Kettle's Yard, so closer to home in Cambridge. There's an exhibition coming up with um, Shutapur Biswas, uh, who's the British Indian artist. And I always really loved her painting, or I suppose it's actually a mixed media artwork, which is, it's called Housewives with Steak Knife, which I just think is such a good title, even without the artwork. Um, <laughs> actually, it would, be a pretty, it would be a really good name for a short story, I think. But she, the artwork itself is just brilliant, and this woman sort of holding a man's severed head and oh. the knife. Um, and I think her work, which is sort of drawing and painting, a bit of, uh, bit of video and photography as well, I think that will be... That'll be a really, really good show. And I like Kettle's Yard as a space. It's a really nice, really nice gallery. Yeah, so that's coming up in July. I'm excited about that. Yeah. The article you published on The Body is Material, that was a fantastic interview. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's with um, Angret Soltau, who um, is actually included at the moment at an exhibition called Mother, which is at the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art, which is in Denmark rather than Louisiana, if there's any confusion there. Um, and she is she was a really fascinating person to speak to because she's actually been working as an artist for a really long time, but I don't feel... She hasn't really had mainstream recognition. She's been mm. recognised by sort of smaller art publications and sort of literary magazines as well. But um, I think when I was speaking to her, it was because... What she felt was that when she first started making artwork, which was engaging with themes such as motherhood or childbirth, that it really wasn't appropriate to sort of talk about that in your art and in such a direct way, because her art is actually... Um, Can you explain it for us, podcasts yeah. being a, more of an auditory medium? Yeah, of course. So her artwork is quite brutal I would say it's quite a brutal um depiction of the female body um so after so one of the series that she did was she documented herself when she was pregnant and she used um embroidery to sort of stitch herself so it looks almost like she's being cut open and then stitched back together and you can see the stitching so you can obviously see that it is it's quite brutal or mm. or kind of like an image from like a horror film what was interesting though was when I mentioned that to her because I said 
I said, I, you know, the brutality aspect. I can definitely see, obviously, childbirth and pregnancy being something which is brutal. And I think it's interesting that she she deals with those themes rather than sort of idealising childbirth and motherhood as being this sort of magical thing. Because I think, you know, obviously that's what it was in the past. Is um, She said that more the sort of thread and the embroidery was actually more for her about adding a tactile element and sort of talking about touch and physicality. Ah. Um, so it wasn't necessarily something she thought of as brutal. And I thought that was interesting because I still have to say, even when she said said that, I still look at the artwork and to me, I find I find sort of them to be marks of violence. But there you go. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously a variety of different experiences people have with motherhood and normally on any given week you'll find a, a story describing another experience of it on the guardian or something like that or various um, newspapers that the intimacy that mothers are supposed to feel with their children is often a given but for many mothers it's not it doesn't come immediately and it, in some sad cases doesn't develop till much later or has to be kind of uh, habitualized as opposed to coming naturally to, to some women which they find very distressing. Similarly, when you look at Annegret's work, the the stitches, I mean, in as much as it's a, this is me, analy- I, don't, I don't know exactly as, 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 uh, as she would put it, when you look at the stitches, they're as much about things coming together as coming apart, obviously, so that That's there, you know, there is that connection with a woman pre-motherhood and post-motherhood as a mother. You know, these giant monolithic, you'd argue, tropes of womanhood in at least Western society. Maybe in other societies it might be more of a continuum, but uh, certainly in some parts of the country. And, you know, who's to say about the country, but maybe for some women that they, they feel that, that there's that huge schism. So it's interesting, yeah, you know, that it, if you do look at the her, her work, as you point out, you know, they, they look quite stark and, and, and violent. But analysing that violence, it's actually part of that violence looks like it's because we're used to seeing pictures of people and, and women in art as being these whole entities, whereas these sort of cut up and stitched back together entities are somehow, you know, it really makes us start to question the, the parts of that that we're being shown. You know, you, you start to analyse what's being cut apart, what's, what is, what's the wholeness that's being was there and or is being reconstructed possibly i'm over overthinking it but uh, no, and not to ma- not to make a bad pun if you can follow the thread of that you'd be doing all right you know but no it, it's it, i was struck by the work which is it's that tasty art it's art that's really working on a, on a cerebral level the aesthetics of it are not those of necessarily horror and shock, though those are, ref- you know, you feel those. I, certainly I do too, uh, along with yourself. Um, but there's that visceralness to it, you know, that really in-your-face element that uh, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah, I think her work is really powerful. And actually what was interesting was one of her quotes really struck me was that she said when she first started making the art, and obviously at the time, well, until very recently, the art world has been known for not being very supportive of women who have children or who are, you know, needing to work around childcare or have galleries around uh, exhibitions around ch- uh, their children's 
sort of schooling and stuff like that. But um, she said that when she was making these works, she even had sort of feminist uh, communities being quite quite un- well I suppose I'm not I was going to say unfair but not unfair I just critical of what she was doing and oh, yeah. yeah and I think I think that's interesting because then it comes into a bit what you were saying is that we get we're very used to seeing certain images and her images can seem immediately shocking compared to what we're used to seeing fact, the exhibition that she's part of mother that is what it's really exploring is these you know how depictions of motherhood changed and obviously motherhood has always been depicted um you know even in sort of the Egyptian times and thinking about sort of fertility vases and all these kinds of things and the goddesses of fertility Mm. um and then all these modern and contemporary artists who are really changing perceptions and it's you know I actually think it's it's happening a lot in literature too at the same time a lot of the books which have been coming out recently have been sort of rewriting mother relationships I'm thinking especially of Burnt Sugar I don't know if you if you read that that was shortlisted for um the booker and so that's sort of talking about a different perception of of motherhood as well and so I think it's, it's, it's exciting to see that there is a space opening up for those kinds of discussions in art. Yeah, and you, you're raising several interesting points, but the the idea of fertility, there was, uh, and fecundity, I suppose, you know, going back to the Venus of Willendorf and certainly some of those <laughs> the very, very early artworks, you know, or maybe... If there are any artists at the moment that are talking about fertility, which is a, it's a concept that's, um, I don't think, pursued very much. But I could be wrong. I'm not something that I've looked at. Because, you know, we're aware that women are having children later in life now and the industry and services around female and, and male fertility, of course, uh, is a growth industry to reflecting that change in society. It'd be interesting to see what art has sprung up that's actually talking about that same concept. Uh, uh, Maybe it's slightly prosaic on my part to think that it is a wonderful echo of 8000 BC in, you know, Harley Street or something like that. But there are... You know, there are those those echoes of universal or at least very biological themes that have been uh, replayed again. Do you, does anyone come to mind? I was just trying to think when you were saying that. We have sexuality. We have motherhood. Yeah. You know, we have the idea of attractiveness is often replayed in either people who are working with the idea of representation and identity. Mm. Those are big, big, you know, well-explored and you know, obviously, still a lot to say. I'm not saying that they're they're uh, exhausted by any means, but the idea of fertility in and of itself is not something you see replayed in in uh, at least in my experience. No, I mean, I I can't think of any, and in fact, I shall look into that and let you know. <laughs> well, Millie, as always, very lovely to speak to you. Thanks again for being part of Trebuchet Podcast. Thank you very much. So without further ado, we have our feature talk with Benji Reed. Benji Reed considers himself a choreophotalist, a term he coined to encapsulate his unique practice where 
theatricality, choreography and photography meet in the image. His breathtaking photographs, composed primarily of self-portraits in incredible anti-gravitational poses with a medley of props, draws the audience into a different dimension. In the hyper-realities he presents, the subject is liberated by acts of the artist's imagination, whether exploring life as an outsider, issues surrounding mental health, or the complexities of fatherhood, Reed makes the audience part of the discussion. Hello. Hello. How's things going? Fine, You're... thank you. And how are you? <laughs> very well, very well. Uh, so by way of introduction a little bit further, you describe yourself as a choreophotalist. Uh, yeah. It's fantastic. And, and so how did, you, how did you get started this way in your work? Um, that, that's, that's interesting. Well, I started off by taking pictures of my daughter um about six seven years six seven years ago just just because i am um, i'd lost my theater company and um the only thing that i had left from the theater company was a working camera and still right. wanted to remain creative i just started to use my daughter uh work with my daughter as a muse and it kind of started off from very simple headshots really bad ones as well but yeah <laughs> started off okay and th with that did you start kind of playing with uh the setting or or, or some of the, the background no, props no, no that that came much later on the first time was just all about how do you just capture the human form how do you capture skin um it wasn't even about storytelling it was just really just the fun of having somebody sit in front um and taking pictures so there was a lightness there wasn't any real intention beyond the fun of just taking the picture but as i started to get other subjects in a number of years later then it then it was about exploring emotional landscapes and because i had um a number of mental health issues the conversations and the people that i would invite in would have had particular emotional uh, stories that they wanted to tell and through the photography um, and through this guided conversation I started to kind of capture people's stories and emotion and then that's when it started to lift off because I realized in a single image that I could still find a story so that's where it started and the props came much much later on and the idea of levitation came much later on but that's a quite a a, uh, a big concept for you uh, in our interview, you yes. describe. Uh, I should preface that uh, we're, we're interviewing Benny uh, Benji also for the for our upcoming issue on surrealism, which is how we we kind of got to know each other. Um, and one of the you know looking at at your um, let's say this picture and and the following one, the the idea of levitation is one that become is quite strong for you. Can you describe a little bit about how you've approached that and what that means for you? Well, um, once I figured out how the, how I could become, or I could I could appear to battle um, gravity, um, it started to come to me the notion of what does it mean for a black man to be weightless, and what does it mean to be weightless today in this sort of society? Because as a black man, we 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 are already pigeonholed into a particular um, stereotype 
And for me, it was about the freedom to be without judgment, mm. without, with, without um, this weight of oppression. So the whole idea of being weightless was about, about real freedom. It was like, I, I, I can create a world where, where I'm not being oppressed, all my brothers are being oppressed, that, that there's a lightness of being. And also that wasn't just about external oppression, that was also about emotional oppression that you had on yourself. So for me, the whole idea of levitation was about freedom and how this black figure could represent a sense of um, an ambition for us to be without judgment in a world that heavily judges us. Yeah. One of the things you described when we were talking about it was that you have, you know, there's a, um, uh, a sense of Afrofuturism and, and these, these characters that are no longer earthbound and are kind of floating off in imagination. But without, there's still these kind of coded references to the world that we know there are, you know, sneakers and hats and, and things like that too. It's a, it's not completely in space. They're not in necessarily in spaces. There's a mixture in there. Yeah, because I want I wanted it to anchor to things that we still understood. You know, like for me, like having the shell toe is still a it's a massive symbol um, of the culture that I come from, which is hip hop. So I wanted to speak to people of that hip hop generation, especially the shell toe generation of the early eighties. But I wanted to show these figures flying because I'm in my mid fifties. So again, it's about this old body still finding space, still finding flight. Um, and this old Afrofuturism is, is about pulling things from the Af African diaspora, but still having one eye to the future. So it's that intersection of yeah. this, this space, B-boy, floating old man from Manchester, um, and kind of finding this really interesting space um, that I could kind of carve out my stories in. Does that, because I wanted it to be feel familiar, but also I wanted it to have a sense of the unusual. And that's where I think we, we, we talked about surrealism, is that we're taking something and we're giving it a twist, where we're, we're changing the lens on it slightly so it becomes something else. Yeah, a, a, a kind of re some of the ideas about surrealism we were, we're talking about yeah. uh, that would be great to discuss here was, was how you're looking at you know, when, when we dream, often the dreams are made up of things that we see in our everyday life, but they're taken in a different way and they have a different meaning. Can you dig into some of the, the symbols that you use that you've, you've made surreal or you've approached in a surreal way and maybe discuss how you've kind of reframed them? Um, well, one would be the child's chair. That, that always pops up in my work. And that's because that was a chair that was found in that, in, in, in my child's Wendy house, but it was small enough for it to fit in my small studio. So first of all, it was about convenience, about having something that was completely scaled down. But then what happened is that figuring out that actually this can also become a chariot. So taking something familiar and then imbuing it with the power to lift the body was about taking it out of its normal context and giving it the sense that it, it could become anything. And that was the joy with, with each object. We go, well, it's only about how I then reimagine it. 
as a lot of the surrealist artists have done, is gone, okay, well, I've taken this, I'm taking it out of its normal context, and I'm trying to figure out in a way in which I can use it in a new way. So the the, the chair would have been would have been one of them. Um, and the clouds come up constantly. So this cloud, this cloud that I'm constantly kind of buffering against, the one that I ride on. So Again, I'd never seen that image where there was a black middle-aged man from Manchester riding a cloud. So just having them, them two actually um, together kind of created a third meaning. And also you've got a cloud and the, and the funky trainers and then the, that big styled hat. So, you know, there's, there's, there's this stylized way of kind of this guy shooting off into the future. And yeah, there was, this thing about how do we harness the clouds? How do we harness these dreams? Because that's what clouds kind of imbue this whole idea of a dream. So they're, they're, they're two things that kind of constantly prop up. Um, another one is kind of the rope. Yeah. And the rope is something that's constantly re, re, um, uh, reoccurring. And I think that is because we've had, you know, black people, have had a long history with the rope. Yeah. And it's about how do I play with these, these symbols um, and how can I imbue it with a, with a different sense of meaning rather than it being, being something that hangs us? Is it something that anchors us in a different way? So these are the, but it's, it's, I, I'm generally, so like the, um, I've got um, a shot the other day where I'm, I'm floating on a chest of drawers and the thing is that came around because I decided to challenge myself. I was like, I'm going to pick an object in this room and I'm going to ride it. How I'm going to ride it, I don't know. Um, but I want to find something that's really quite unusual between this chest of this small chest of drawers and the body. And how can I get that to become a flying machine? So I'm constantly giving myself kind of these equations or challenges about how can I take these everyday objects and how can I um, give them um, a different property and a different power. The, it seems that to be able to do that, you have to connect with the objects. Absolutely. They have to kind of speak to you in some way, right? Absolutely. So for me, the process of shooting now lasts about three days. So once I've set up my muse on scene or my set or my world, um, I will meditate on the objects. I'll leave them in the space, and I'll and I'll allow them to speak to me, or I'll allow myself to move around them. Um, and I'm having a conversation, whether it's actually a really heavy rock, or whether it's a fabricated cloud, or whether it's a rope, or a child's chair, or the chest of drawers. And it's about me having a conversation with these these pieces in space, and. I find that I always go wrong when when I force the agenda on onto the onto the property or the object, but when I allow the object to kind of speak through me, I am then thrown into another space and another dimension in which I find this flow and this operation and this dance. So for me, it's about giving up power in the space in order for the object to kind of truly speak to me. Yeah, you did mention that before that there is almost the catalyst for the object to speak to you is almost an undoing of your own self, like getting rid of some of the egotistical parts of your, Absolutely. what you want it to be or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, is there a sense of entity, I suppose, about these, these objects that you connect to? 
entity. Explain, explain what you mean by yeah, that. Something in you connect with something in those objects that uh, yeah, that yeah, yeah you have a conversation through the creative work. Absolutely, because I think that every object has its spirit. Every object has kind of the, this this spirit that I'm kind of having a conversation with. Um, so yeah, um, and allowing and really allowing the object to fly is really to allow its spirit to speak. So, because the idea is, I mean, you know, we know that I am not flying. That we you know, we know that's true. But the idea is to go. How do I create it so that it actually looks like we are? So yeah. what happens is that you create a set of circumstances where you can't even figure out where the anchor the anchor points are. And there's this conversation that I'm having with these objects, and I'm going, "What is it you're telling me to do? How are you asking me to bear weight upon you?" And each object will bear weight differently. And for me, it's about really being sensitive because it's really, really finely balanced. You know, there's times I've taken a real big tumble. Um, because I wasn't really listening to the object. So yes, each of them have an entity um, in a weird way. And when they speak through, there's something that happens that is not necessarily about you controlling what, how it comes out. So the series of three days, there's a two hour shoot that may happen three times a day. And within that, I'm getting closer and closer to what it is that I'm feeling deep inside. Because right. sorry, I'm gonna say this that sometimes I have a notion that I don't have words for, and that's why yeah. there's a surrealist and uh, element. But through the objects, I find the form then speaks to me in a way. Your work, uh, your work's been described as kind of a visual poem. Yes. Here. So that there are that kind of carries on from what you're saying that the way certain elements and you know yourself as an element within or your subject or whatever is an element within that shot, the way they work together creates something that you can't quite put into words, but is powerful and, and draws people in. Um, and there is that, that, an element that uh, you've mentioned before, which is that a lot of artists are cagey about the idea of appeal. And it's not something that you shy away from. You said, no, I, I want people to look at my work. You know, if if it's for a second or two seconds, I want to grab people. Yeah, just that a bit. Well, yeah, because basically, uh, one of my mentors goes, "Why is your Why is your work always square?" I says, "Because it fits within the square of um, of Instagram." You know, I'm an Instagram artist. Right. You know, Facebook and Instagram they were the first platforms. They were my first galleries, and my whole idea was that I wanted to make something that stops you from scrolling. Right. And at the same time I'm making this work, you have to remember that you've got all of these mad murders that are happening to black people on the street of America. And then we've got all of these crazy uh, arrest rates here and whatever. So you've got all of this stuff that this work is juxtaposed against. And what it was, was that, can I give ourselves a bit of relief and a bit of fantasy, something that's slightly out of the unusual that stops and allows you to contemplate the platform in a different way rather than it being a total victim. So my idea was about how do I stop you from scrolling? How do I create an image that is so striking it stops you for a second so that you can contemplate it? So that's where its appeal was from. And when you're competing against millions of images on the gram, you figure out how to use composition, how to use 
a small space and make that dynamic. Plus, the only place I've got is my front room. So I have to kind right. of really utilize all the things that I've got. And the idea is that this work shouldn't be able to make it be shouldn't be able to be made anywhere else because I'm using the immediate properties that are around me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So how do I stop you from scrolling? How do I work with a limited space? How do I take tropes from the hip hop and, and black community and flip it? And that's the sort of ingredients um, for some of the work that's come out. Right. The other aspect of the uh, of your work is that it's, um, what am I trying to say? It's not dystopian, it's futuristic, but it has aspects of imagination, but it still references reality. It doesn't, it kind of crosses both worlds in, in, that, in that way. So yeah. it, when you're talking about the work kind of knowingly going to appear alongside other images within a feed or something like that, it's, are you, how do you work with it so that it's not a radical change? It's not like out and out different that people can ignore. It bleeds into the previous images that people might have seen. I was wondering if you were aware of that and you were working with that when you put in ordinary images and stuff like that. Yeah. First of all, I think that my work is anchored in in my politic as black as a black man who wants freedom, who wants uh, who wants equality, who wants equality for everyone. So my work is anchored in something that that uh, that's quite leftist. That I I'm I am I am begging for freedom. I'm begging to be seen as human rather than as a victim or as a predator. So I'm, I'm asking for you to look at me again. But I'm also, of course, each piece is a conversation with something I've made before because they're all slight progressions of ideas. So what's happened is I'll start off with a very simple premise of um, a small cloud very early on. And then I keep coming back to this idea and then eventually I'm riding it and eventually my daughter's riding it and eventually it then becomes like wings at the back. Um, but each piece, each piece kind of almost is in a conversation with previous pieces before. So what I'm doing is I'm slowly going further and further out or even sometimes even in a circle because I think I've not been making work long enough for me to kind of see the big themes. But I, I presume that once you know I've been making work in this vein for for five years, that that yeah. particular themes will start to kind of really appear. So, in that sense, is there a? It sounds like you're on an exciting part of your career. I, I think you've got a, a show at the October Gallery. That's right. Up, uh, yes. Where people can obviously go and see your work, and and they should. I should. Hope yes. Please do. Within your work. I yeah. get you, it sounds like you know that they might be the series that are you know some painters might say oh this is my series of dogs for instance or cats or whatever and they'll have a whole series within that but you're kind of you're letting it evolve over time it, so you've got a cloud series and a a, uh, a kind of weightless series or can you talk about some of the different series that people might see or get a sense of um i i don't know if i really can you see the thing is the problem that i have is that i'm not speaking from a really knowing place i'm so oh. in the space of it 
that they seem to be evolving themselves. Right. Do you, know what I mean? you know, because what I'm noticing is that I'm, I'm you know, it's funny, it's, it's because I'm using a lot of the same properties and then going, how else can I work with this? <laughs> because I, I can't continuously be buying new props. Um, and neither do I want to because the ones that are working quite well, I'm kind of going, okay, how do I revisit that? Um, but I think that there is the idea of solitude and loneliness yeah. is one. Freedom is, 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 a, is another expression. And the body and light is another expression. Fatherhood is another theme. You know, rather than the properties themselves, I think there are, are staple things that I'm constantly coming back to and re-examining. And I'm really interested in examining the, the internal landscape uh, wh because I've gone from being quite depressed to being really quite healthy. So my work has, it's also been reflected in my work in terms of my early work was much darker, it was black and white, it was angst ridden, it was, you know, shiny, glistening bodies, quite stark images. Um, and these other images speak to freedom and they speak to colour and they speak to brightness and speak to something being sculptural. So, you know, um, I feel like there's a real blossoming and growing that, that's happening at the moment, if that makes any sense. Does indeed. Benji, thank you very much. Yay. We're going to open it out to some Q&A questions. To hopefully some people have asked some. Uh, if you haven't already, please pop, pop a question in there uh, in the, in the Q&A bit. I've got a um, maybe a final question while, while people have a, have a go. We, uh, it was an interesting, I, I want to find out what does sample culture mean to you and how have you kind of worked within that idea of how samples work ah well well sampling for me was a staple part of hip-hop um i've been taking something familiar and cutting it up um looping it or chopping it um and making it your own and i feel that I am constantly sampling. I'm constantly looking and going, okay, how do I how do I imagine that or how do I reimagine that particular artist and how do I how would I do it? How would I cut it up and remix it? Um so uh, Richard Avedon or Sean um or um Irvin Penn, you know, yeah. these kind of photographers that I absolutely adored and I looked at how they used light and I looked at how they used um, silhouette. I looked at how they were very sculptural and I was going, I want to, I want to take that and I want to remix it and I want to sample it. So, so, and that I think is, is going back to my anchor to, to the, to hip hop culture, because I think that my work is an extension of that world, but I didn't want it to be locked into it. So yeah, there are ideas of taking stuff and remixing it and reworking it but you had a really great take on it and um, when we talked about some and what you saw in my work so can you tell me it's a long time ago now well uh i'm gonna i'm gonna be real cheeky and uh and say well you can you can 
pre-order the next copy of Trebuchet. <laughs> and actually, we've got a few questions here, so this is a good chance to, to get some audience participation going. Um, yeah. Mal, Mal asks, is there a narrative for each image? Yes, but what I've realized now is that the viewer always comes with their own truth. So for me, it's more about what does that work mean to you? But there's one character that which is is um, a drunken matters where the guy's got a glass in one hand and he's anchored to the rock on the other and he's floating. He's got the samurai hat. And that was me really kind of exploring kind of alcohol, alcoholic, alcoholism um through that image and even though i didn't want it to be apparent for me that's what the meaning was was this guy still kind of fighting between the 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 um the alcohol and the rock on the floor and this kind of samurai thing you know that's the one there that's the image there um so for me that was me really exploring the idea so each piece has a meaning for me but i also know that when i've spoken to my other friends that they have had a different aspect. So what's really interesting in that image, I've got all the dust at the back. And for me, all that dust is like the mountains and and the, the line of dust there is kind of the horizon with the sun in the background. But if you see in the space, it's really, really, really small. So for me, um, yeah, there, 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 is, there is a personal story. Each one of them has a personal meaning for me. Hmm. Uh, Paige asks, why did you choose working with photography? Um, because it was the only medium that I could work with that didn't really rely on anybody else but myself as a tripod and a trigger. So, you know, the smallest unit was myself yeah. and, and the camera and the, and the larger unit is myself, my daughter and the camera. Um, is there any more questions that people want to ask or are we good um benji i, I think that's it thank you so much and uh, just to repeat i think uh, someone's popped a, a link in the the chat on the right where people can have a look at more of, of benji's artwork there and also see where he's next exhibiting um in the we are going to publish these talks as podcasts as part of the Trebuchet Talks thing and part of those will have um, kind of show notes with further links that you can uh, see Benji's work. Um, yeah, so thank you very much, Benji. It's been a real honour. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Ah, yes. Thanks again for listening to the Trebuchet Magazine podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, share us on your social media channel of choice, or consider becoming a subscriber. Every subscriber gets a shout out in the podcast, as well as the great feeling of supporting a truly independent contemporary art voice. Of course, if you'd like us to answer any questions on the podcast, or to mention a creative event you think people should know about, please do let us know via an email to megan at trebuchet.click. Till next time. Stay safe and keep creating.